Thanks, Dan, for reading that. Uh, let me add my welcome to his. My name's Tom Woodbridge. I'm part of the staff team here at Inspire St. James. I help to look after our student ministry um, and also our midweek uh, city ministry. Are you in or are you out? If you've been uh, following the news over the last few days this past week, uh, that's been a big question when it's come to politics this week. And maybe you thought Sunday church, at least you can get away from it uh, for a few hours. But bear with me for a few seconds as we just reflect on events uh, these past few days. Are you in or are you out? Earlier in the week, Boris Johnson was up against uh, Jeremy Hunt. Who would be in as the new Conservative Party leader? And as a result, who would be out? Who would be in? And who would then be our new Prime Minister? And so then once Boris was in, the question came round again, are you in or are you out when it comes to Boris's cabinet? Are you worthy of a place in his cabinet? Do you make the grade? Do you make the mark to get into his cabinet? And each time, each person almost had to state their worth, put forward their credentials as to are you in or are you out? Are you good enough to make the grade? And it almost seemed that as we went through the whole process, uh, you couldn't show any kind of sign of weakness that will work against you. I wonder if you saw a few weeks ago at one of the um, candidate Q&As, they were asked the question, what is your biggest weakness? And even in their answers, they were kind of like hidden strengths. They were like inverted strengths. My biggest weakness is impatience. So vote for me and I'll get it done quickly. My biggest weakness is stubbornness because I'll definitely get done what I want to get done. Just don't give off any weakness, because if you're going to be in, you've got to show people how good you are. You've got to show people how good a job you can do. People need to notice you. Are you in, or are you out? Well, as Dan said, we're starting a new summer series looking at a series of parables. I had a bit um, ready now to explain what a parable is, but I'm not quite as eloquent as Dan, so I'll do away with that whole section. All I had down was a parable is a story that Jesus tells. Um, so don't listen to that. Listen to what Dan said. Um, I certainly wasn't going deep sea diving or anything like that. But hey, a parable, for those of you like me um, who are less eloquent, a parable is a story that Jesus tells. It's a great story, but we need to be careful to, in case we miss the meaning. A parable is a story that Jesus tells, but it has a deeper meaning. It has a meaning that Jesus wants us to take note of. And so as we look at these parables in chapters 14 to 16 of Luke's gospel, they're set in the context of chapter 13, verses 22 to 24. Have a look back to these verses. Jesus is going through the towns and villages and teaching as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And someone asks him, verse 23, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? To which Jesus replies, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. You see, throughout these parables we're going to look at over the next few weeks, Jesus says, some are in and some are out. So make sure that you're in. And so throughout the parables, Jesus shows us the type of person who's in. And so in our parable this afternoon, well, Jesus says the way to be in might take some people in Downing Street and across the world by surprise. So let's get into our parable. 
and we find Jesus at dinner. Uh, Dan read verse 1 to give us the context of where we are. Jesus is at dinner eating at the house of a prominent Pharisee. A Pharisee, this Pharisee being prominent, might be a a ruler at the local synagogue. Uh, But he certainly knows his Torah. You see, as a Jew, if you wanted a kind of example of the model Jew who would live everything out to a T, then the Pharisee is the one you want to copy. And a prominent Pharisee at that, we're at dinner with a prominent Pharisee. And look at what we're told at the end of verse 1. Jesus is being carefully watched. It's almost as if words got round about this man. And the Pharisees want to check him out. They're not sure about him, and, and so they try to catch him out, either through some of the things he does or some of the things he says. And yet, did you see the irony in verse 7? When he, Jesus, noticed, dot, dot, dot. You see, whilst Jesus is being watched, he's doing the watching. And so in the same way as we read this parable, as we read the story, let the story read us. Let the parable challenge us. And so then, as Jesus watches, first thing he says, the person who's in thinks of themselves less. The person who's in thinks of themselves less. Verse 7, when he had noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, Do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. Well, Jesus certainly knows how to make a scene at a dinner party, right? Uh, At the Woodbridge household at the moment, Downton Abbey is the uh, box set of choice, and I see a few faces sort of grown a little bit. Downton Abbey's a bit kind of the marmite of period dramas, isn't it? You either love it or you hate it. But one thing's for sure, they know how to do a dinner party. And so they get the right uh, silver, they get the best suits, the places are set and made, the right way to eat is needed, the right conversations are had. There's a certain way of acting at them, and I certainly wouldn't know what to do myself if I was at it. And I'd be pretty confident to say that by Downton standards, Jesus hasn't quite got it right here. As Jesus is being watched, he's watching. And he notices how the different guests scramble for the best seats. And rather than being British and rolling your eyes and tutting, but certainly not saying a thing to anyone, no, Jesus says something. And he starts to tell a story, a parable, to expose the guests at the dinner. He says, when you're invited, don't go for the best seats. Don't go for the seat that's saved for the place of honor, because there could be someone there who's more important than you. No, it's, the danger is you run the risk of total embarrassment, of total humiliation, being told in front of everyone to get up, to having to find a different seat. By this time, all the seats are taken, and so you need to go all the way to the lowest place. Oh, the shame, the humiliation, Jesus says. Jesus says, 
No, 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 so much better to go lower. And so when the host sees you, they say, no, come on, that's not the seat for you. You're better than that. And so they move you up to a better seat. That's what we like, isn't it? And not just moved up, but moved up in front of everyone. Did you see verse 10? Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. And, and it, it almost seems to make good social sense from Jesus. I mean, I wonder if you can kind of picture almost the modern-day equivalent. The wedding invite comes through the post, and you open it, and as we all do, we check if we've made the cut for the whole day. We're in. Full day, service, evening, but dinner in the middle as well. And so the wedding day comes, and as you go, down, go into the room uh, to find your place, you see the crowd around the tiny seating plan trying to find your name. You think, I don't need that. I know where I'll be. And so you make your way to the top table. Bride and groom, you're not that arrogant. You know you're not meant to sit there. But you have a look at the place names. Mother of the bride, I'll take that one. And so you swap the place names round, and, and you love it as you take your seat. If you've ever been an usher at a wedding, you'll know that the worst role you can have and the one you hope you avoid is having to tell someone they've not quite made the cut for the whole day, but they think they have. So they've walked in for dinner, and you need to tell them as your role that, I'm really sorry, you need to find dinner elsewhere. Well, this would trump it, wouldn't it? The host comes up to you as usher and says, you need to get that person out of the way. And so the usher walks over. The mother of the bride is shaking her head behind you as you're pouring your first glass of wine and says, no, 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 you need to move. That's not your seat. And we know how the ranking works at a wedding. You've got the top table. You've got the ones closest who are family and closest friends. And as you work your way away, as further away from the top table, as all these seats are taken right to the back table, hardly able to see the top table, as you take your seat. The humiliation. And yet Jesus says, imagine the opposite. Do the opposite. The honor of sitting down at the lowest seat, at the lowest table, where you can hardly see the top table. And not just the ushers, but the host, the bride and groom themselves come in front of everyone and say, no, that's not where you sit. You come with us right to the front. So is Jesus just giving some kind of good social advice, how to avoid humiliation at dinner parties, how to gain honor? No, it's something so much deeper than that. Jesus is taking the opportunity to hold a mirror up in front of the Pharisees to expose their proud attitudes. Jesus is showing how to be in, verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Jesus says the person who's in is the person who thinks of themselves least. Jesus says there is an exaltation to come, but it's not for those who want to exalt themselves in this life. He says the fundamental quality for my kingdom is humility. You see, pride's an ugly quality, isn't it? Pride is more than just a confidence in yourself. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's like an arrogance in yourself and your own ability. It's thinking that no one can quite cut it when it comes up to comparing against you. No one can quite do it as well as you can. Pride looks in the mirror. It enlarges self. And as a result, it reduces everyone around you. And it reduces God. 
There's a story that uh, Muhammad Ali, who was a former heavyweight boxer, heavyweight champion of the world, was on an aeroplane, and an air stewardess uh, came up to him and said, Say, uh, you need to put your seatbelt on. Ali responded, saying, Superman don't need no seatbelt. It's kind of funny, but at the same time you go, who do you think you are? Come on. And the air stewardess brilliantly responded and said, yes, but Superman didn't need a plane, did he? It's great to cut them down when the pride is, is such an ugly quality. But pride isn't just ugly to others around us. Pride is ugly to God. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes pride in relation to God. He says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and on people around him. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride is ugly. Pride cuts us off from God. And yet the opposite, humility, well, that's attractive. I'm sure there's not one person in this room who, who wouldn't want to be known as humble or wouldn't want to grow in that attribute of humility. The 19th century preacher Charles Simeon said the three lessons a Christian needs to learn is humility, humility, and humility. You see, humility gives us a right view and attitude of ourselves, and it gives us a right view and attitude of those who are around us. Humility attracts the world's attention, but more than the world's attention, humility attracts God's attention, verse 11. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I wonder for you, where are the dangers in your life where you can be in danger of, of exalting yourself, of putting yourself first before other people? Maybe at work, where, where do you sit in meetings? Do you try and make sure you get that good place where, where people can see you, where the person chairing the meeting can certainly see you and notice you and want your opinion? Who do we speak to at, at social functions? Or, or what do we speak about? Do we want to make sure people know who I am, what I do, what I've achieved? Do we spend more of our time talking about ourselves than others? Don't exalt yourself. Jesus warns. What about here at church? Who do you look to speak to before the service, after the service? If you're at the big lunch, who do you look to sit next to? What do you speak about? Are you interested in them? Who they are? What they do? Are you ever in danger of exalting yourself when it comes to what you do at church? Loving the fact that you serve on so many rotors, but you'll make sure everyone knows about it. Jesus warns, don't exalt yourself. Because those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. First then, Jesus says, the person who's in is the person who thinks of themselves less. And second, as Jesus continues his lesson, he says, the person who's in is other person-centered. The person who's in is other person-centered, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. 
But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Can you picture the scene? Imagine the scene at the end of verse 11. The host of the dinner party probably thinking, this is a bit awkward, but at least I'm not a guest. I'm the host. At least I've got away with it. And almost before he's even finished his thought, Jesus turns to him. You think you're any better? Look at your guest list. You've just put a dinner on for those you like, for those you know will be able to repay you and invite you back. What about the ones who aren't here? They're the ones you should be inviting along. You see, in in ancient times, there was a big payback culture. If I do something for you, then you do it for me. If I help you out, well, you make sure you help me out. And so it extended to dinner invites. If I invite you around for dinner, well, I look forward to receiving my invite back. And Jesus says, don't live like that. It's so easy to do. It works nicely for us. It feels good. And Jesus says, no. And of course, Jesus isn't saying, command you not to invite your friends or relatives around for dinner. He's he's not saying or stopping us from hanging out with good friends. And he's certainly not giving an excuse to not invite the in-laws around for dinner. No, this is so much deeper than that. It's a deeper heart issue that Jesus is getting at. He says, don't act in a way, don't let your decisions be governed by whether you'll be paid back. Because that's not the way of someone who's in. Because ultimately, it's still thinking about self. It's still putting self at the center. No, he says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, even though they cannot repay you. I once heard a definition of humility as humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. You see, humility is total other person centeredness. And notice here who the other person is really matters. It's not the other person who you know will pay you back, who you enjoy the company of necessarily. No, it's the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. It's the people that no one associates with, the people who you know won't be able to pay you back. And so Jesus challenges the Pharisees with him. Who do you invite to your dinner parties? Who do you hang out with? Who do you want to be seen with? Who do you give your time with? Because if it's those who will be able to pay you back, if it's those who boost your social status, that's not generosity. In fact, you're still just thinking about yourself and what you can get out of it. No, generosity is giving to those who cannot repay you back. That is other person-centeredness. And so, again, as we read the parable, let the parable read us. As Jesus challenges the Pharisees, let Jesus challenge us. I wonder, do you open your home to hospitality? Do you invite people around for dinner? Let me challenge you, who do you invite? Is it the people you want to impress? The people that actually you want to get around their house so you hope they'll pay you back with an invite? 
Or is it those who can't repay you? Do you find yourself keeping a kind of mental list of who you have invited, seeing if they're inviting you back? Or a mental list of those who have invited you? What defines the guest list for you? And so how does that extend to church family here at Inspire St. James? Do you offer hospitality? Last week, if you were here, we, we heard the challenge to community and true hospitality, true community. And we're challenged, do you like the idea of hospitality, but aren't doing anything about it? Let me add this week, do you like the idea of hospitality, but only with those you want around your house? And of course, it's wider than just dinner invites. It's who you have time for at work, outside of work. Do you know the people that people at work just don't associate with? It's it's who we take the time to get to know here at Inspire St. James. Who you spend time with on a Sunday before and after the service, but not just on a Sunday throughout the week as well. Is it just those who can pay you back? Because, verse 14, you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You see, Jesus hints here at a party that is so good and lasts forever. Isaiah in Isaiah 25 speaks of this party when he uses the word, a feast of rich food, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. The invite's gone out. And you see in verse 10, the host calls you friend. But the warning is, those who exalt themselves aren't in. But those who humble themselves, those who are other person-centered, those who won't be repaid, well, they're the ones that are in. So then, as we bring it round, how are we able to do this? How are we going to be able to live this out? Uh, Rosie and I are, are big Friends fans. Uh, we have the theme tune as our sort of walking out song. At our wedding, we recently finished watching uh, the complete box set, series 1 to 10. We didn't do it too quickly, don't worry. It took us a bit of time. Uh, but in one episode, if you've seen it, in one episode, uh, there's an argument between two of the characters, uh, between Phoebe and Joey, where Joey claims that there is no such thing as an unselfish good deed. And, and Phoebe's, Phoebe's adamant that there can be and goes out of her way to prove him wrong. And if you know the two characters, you know that it's, it's a stupid argument and a, and a ridiculous storyline as it plays out. But Phoebe wants to prove to Joey that of course there's such thing. As, a, and a, as an unselfish good deed. And so she goes about it, trying to do it. She lets herself be stung by a bee to show that that's not selfish, to be told that the bee's probably dead. She tries to do good deeds, but every time there's a little part of her that always feels good, and so in the end somehow proves Joey's kind of warped theory and supposed wisdom. It's a ridiculous storyline. It's a ridiculous argument. But hey, maybe, maybe... Maybe there's a hint of truth in what Joey says. Because the Bible says the reality of sin is that it affects us so much that we put ourselves and our needs before God and before others. And so it says it stains our motives 
that we become self-centered. How are we to do it? How are we to humble ourselves? Well, Jesus here is not just talking about how we act at dinner parties. He's not just talking about wider in life, our actions and our motivations, but it's so much deeper than that, remember. Remember the context, chapter 13? Jesus is bothered that we enter through the narrow door. Jesus is bothered whether you're in or whether you're out. And so throughout this parable, Jesus is at at pains to show the Pharisees that if you think you're good enough, if you think you're proud enough to think that you can get yourself through that narrow door, if you think you can get in by your own effort or your own good deeds, if you can continue to exalt yourself in that way, confident in your own ability that you think you're in, well, Jesus wants to make it clear that you're out. And so Jesus says we need to humble ourselves, of course, towards others, but most importantly, towards God himself, to remember that in our own strength, that if it's down to us, that we're not in. But Jesus says we need to humble ourselves, because in fact, your worthiness is in fact your unworthiness. And any honor before God is in fact your lack of honor. No, no one deserves to be there, but everyone is invited. Is Joey right? Is there really no such thing as an unselfish good deed? Well, we only need to look to the cross for the answer. Because at the cross, we see the one who has truly done that unselfish good deed. To the one where Paul writes in Philippians 2, who in being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And so being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Jesus was the king who could have been born in a palace, but was born in a stable. Jesus could have hung out with the high and the lofty, but associated with the lowly. Jesus could have taken the honor, but instead he takes the lowest place as he's nailed to the cross as a criminal, humiliated, And so Jesus takes the lowest place. He takes our place. So that as Jesus is humbled, we can be exalted. And so Jesus opens his arms and calls us friend and welcomes us to his party if we humble ourselves. And if we humble ourselves, well, Jesus promises to empower us and to change us so that we can humble ourselves towards other people. Are you in or are you out? For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this parable. Thank you for these stories that we can enjoy, but Lord, help us never to miss the meaning and how the parable reads and challenges us. 
And so, Lord, we're challenged uh, to humble ourselves, to think of ourselves less, and to be other person-centered in all that we do. Lord, may that start with our attitude towards you. May we humble ourselves before you, realizing that in our own strength we can do nothing. And yet it is all because of what Jesus has done on the cross in humbling himself that we can be exalted. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, may you help us to humble ourselves towards others in the way that we act, in the way that we speak, in who we speak and act alongside. Change us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.